Well, you're here Sunday after Thanksgiving. I'm proud of you. you you've done well. You're not in some sort of turkey coma. Good for you. you. You're not still asleep. If that's happened to you, see a medical professional. That's, that's not healthy. That's not okay. But, but you've made it. You're on the other side of Black Friday. You're on uh, into the Christmas season. And I feel compelled to use this platform right now to share a little bit of truth with you. And that is that the best part of Thanksgiving is unequivocally the leftover Thanksgiving sandwich, okay? If you don't do this, if you've never experienced the Shekinah glory that descends upon a house when you take the uh, cranberry sauce and the turkey and, and the stuffing and the gravy and bite into that sandwich, you are missing out. Next year, I've already got it all planned out. I'm going to cook for myself a full Thanksgiving meal, put it in the Tupperware, in the fridge, and then go out that day. And I'm going to have sandwiches for weeks to come. It's going to be, it's gonna, you're going to see me gain some weight next year, I'm telling you. It's going to be great, okay? And I think with uh, Thanksgiving come and gone, we are officially in the Christmas season. It even started snowing this morning. I don't know if you saw that, but that was pretty crazy. And I think I could pretty easily split the room right now if I asked you, when do you start celebrating Christmas? Like, when do you put the lights out, the tree, or trees, depending on who you are? Some people got to have more than one tree in the house. I, I know who you are. I'm not going to name names, but... Um, when do you start turning on the music? When do you take down the fall decorations? Well, this is a pretty controversial topic, okay? Uh, I, myself, like to let Thanksgiving kind of breathe and have its day, okay? But I am a man of truth. I, I, I like to think that I'm on the side of truth. And so I, uh, I, I heard out some of the arguments this year. I was talking with some people in a community group, and we were just talking about how you celebrate kind of, or you have the fall aesthetic going on for like three months, September, October, November. It's pumpkins and gourds and leaves, and everything's brown and orange for like three months, and then you only have a month of Christmas. I was like, that doesn't seem fair. You're right. That, that seems a little not fair. And then they were like, you know, there's really no good music to listen to. Like, what are you supposed to turn on during the Thanksgiving season? There's no Thanksgiving music. So musicians like Becca, get on this, okay? You got to get a Thanksgiving song written. Well, actually, there's a, uh, a, a, an artist by the name of Ben Rector, if you've heard of him. He's an awesome uh, artist who loves the Lord, and he released a song called The Thanksgiving Song. So you should go listen to it on your car ride home because it's really good. And I listened to it on Thanksgiving. And, um, but I don't know if you knew this, but today actually marks in church tradition the first day of the Christmas season. Like, according to the church calendar, what's called the liturgical year, today, this Sunday, marks the beginning of Advent, which goes all the way up to uh, December 24th, right before Christmas. And so I'll, I'm not telling you that, you know, you're wrong if you believe that you should listen to Christmas music, but I am saying that, like, 1,500 years of church tradition would say that you're wrong, and you might have something to talk to the church fathers about. Um, see, the liturgical year of the church calendar sounds like this weird thing. Like, what does that mean? Um, basically, it is a calendar that's mostly agreed upon by the Christian church all over the world, and it tells us when certain holidays and special events kind of lie, because if you've ever noticed, like, Easter will be at the end of April one year and the beginning of April another year it's because there's all these like oh three weeks after this but eight weeks before this and there's all this math that has to happen and so the liturgical calendar just kind of does it for you and lets you know when everything is supposed to start and so advent starts on the fourth week before christmas so the fourth sunday before christmas is the beginning of the advent 
And I know something like the church calendar might actually bring up some feelings inside of you, especially if you've come from a church background that was very legalistic or very ritualistic. It might even seem like something that that is oppressive or that is meant to restrict you and take away from your relationship with the Lord and and put you in a a box of religion. And what I actually want to share with your heart today is the, the heart behind something like the church calendar is not to restrict you, not to oppress you, not to get you caught up in rituals. It was actually designed for you to build a rhythm of devotion to God in your life. To to say, okay, during these four weeks or during these few days, we're going to shift our focus, shift our attention to this thing about God or this thing about Jesus or this thing about who we are in the light of what Jesus has done. It is not meant to oppress you, although I'm sure it has been used that way, but it's meant to build a rhythm into your life. And that's really what I want to get at today as we talk about the Advent. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. Like you don't know what the word Advent means. You don't know what the liturgical calendar means. That's fine. That's all good. I'm glad that you're here today. And Advent, the word Advent, comes from the Latin word which means coming. It literally means the celebration and the anticipation of Jesus' coming. And if you're like me, then the first question that pops into your head is, which coming? Like, which one are we talking about? The the first coming, where he comes as a baby, and his ministry, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection? Or are we talking about the second coming, which is yet to happen, where he will bring his kingdom into fulfillment? And what I love about the Advent is it looks both backwards and forwards. It looks backwards at Jesus' birth, the miracle that took place in Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death. And his resurrection, but it simultaneously looks forward and longs for the return of Jesus when he will come and he will make all things new again, that that he will renew all creation and, and fulfill, bring the fullness of his kingdom here on earth and in heaven. And so I don't know what your traditions look like, I don't know what it looks like for you to celebrate Christmas, but I think the Advent wants to point our attention to something more than uh, uh, the image of a baby in a manger or just the, the, the birth narrative of Jesus. Although it's not less than that. That's not unimportant. I think it's extremely important. But I think it's so much more than just this image that we get caught up in of a baby in a manger. I think it really is designed to shift your focus to the kingdom of God that's at hand. And how do we live in that? How do we walk in that? How do we play out in that tension that we live in as believers? Because there is tension there. See, there's tension in this idea that theologians call already but not yet. Everyone say already but not yet. Already but not yet is this idea in theology that that Jesus' kingdom has already been instituted in his ministry, but it has not yet been fulfilled in his second coming. And so you and I live in this kind of in-between phase of history, this tension where Jesus' kingdom is already at hand, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And we need to figure out how we walk in that, what role we play in that kingdom. That we are a people waiting for, longing for a future kingdom in the midst of a broken world that's still hurting, that's still longing for uh, some sort of salvation in a world where there are people who haven't heard who Jesus is and what he has done for them. 
And I think our problem is that we don't think this way as believers. Like, this isn't the way that we view our lives. This isn't the way that we view the world. I'm not calling anyone out, and I pray that this isn't you, but I, I think the modern American Christian, the kind of casual churchgoer, would view their life in this way. One, uh, try your best to be a good person. Two, go to church when it's convenient. Three, give or serve if convenient. If you do both, you're like the best Christian ever. And um, wait until you die or Jesus comes back so that you can go to heaven. That is kind of the average worldview of a Christian. Nothing about kingdom living. Nothing about what does it mean for us to live in this tension, this in-between phase where Jesus' kingdom has already been instituted but not yet been fulfilled. And it's okay... It's okay that that's not on the forefront of your mind, but that's what the Advent is designed to do. When something falls from the forefront of your mind, it's designed to shift your focus, to shift your attention back to, hey, let's, let's look at Let's look at this concept of, of already not yet. Let's look at what it means for us to live in this phase of history right now where we know that Jesus is king. We know that he is victorious. But at the same time, we are waiting for him to come back and bring the fulfillment of what he has done. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're joining us, whether you're joining us online or you are with us in the room, man, I'm grateful and thankful that you're here. And my hope for you today is that you will see that there is a place for you in Jesus' kingdom. Like as we talk about what does Jesus' kingdom look like, what does it mean for us to walk in it, I hope that you'll see that there is a place for you in his kingdom. I don't know if you felt cast aside by the world. Maybe you felt cast aside by the church. And if that's you, let me just break for a second and say that I, I'm sorry that, you've, that you have been cast away, rejected by Christians because that's not God's heart for you. And I'm so glad that you're here or that you're just joining us for this morning. And maybe you feel far, maybe you feel too far gone or that the love of God could never apply to you. And if that's you today, it's my hope that you'll see the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done for you, and the place that he has carved out in his kingdom for you. And so we're going to lean into this tension a little bit. We're going to talk about, really simply, uh, what is Jesus' kingdom? What does it look like? And how do we live that out? And what does this all have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with the weeks and days leading up to Christmas? And so we're going to spend our time together in Luke chapter 3. And this is not a birth narrative. This is not a Christmassy passage. This is a, this is a sermon, actually, preached by John the Baptist as he's preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And, and it's coming at a time where Israel is longing for their Messiah. They have been oppressed and abused, beaten, murdered in large numbers. Uh, they have been taken into exile by Babylonians. They've been scattered by Assyrians. Then there is a moment of peace, not before the Romans come in and occupy them. They are weary and waiting for their Messiah. But at the same time, they have wandered so far from God's heart. The religious leaders have come to this place where they have uh, instituted laws and rules. It's more about moral perfection and more about following certain rules and codes than it is about devotion to God and love for people. And so they've wandered so far from God's heart. And John is going to come in here in this message, in this sermon that he preaches and, and, and kind of call out the tendencies of that day and, and talk about 
what Jesus' kingdom is and how citizens and representatives of that kingdom live their lives. And so we're going to start in verse 4 of Luke 3. And John says this, As it is written in the, books, in the book of the word of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight and the rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. Now John here is quoting Isaiah 40. Verses 3 through 5. You can actually look that up and see those words. And as we talked about in our evidence series, Doug talked about how the, the words of the prophets point to the coming of Jesus, point to the work of Jesus. And that's what John is highlighting here. And I think at first these words can be a little confusing. Like when I was younger, I thought this was like about travel. Like I was like, hey, he's talking about like make the road straight and, and bring everything low and flat. This way Jesus, when he's coming into town, he can just like come in kind of straightforward. There's no obstacles in the way. And really, this has nothing to do with that. It's not about travel. This is much more symbolic than that. See, what he's getting at is high things being brought low and low things being raised up. See, in Jesus' kingdom, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, everyone is on equal ground. There is not a person who is more or less worthy of God's love. There is not a person who is more or less worthy or deserving of God's salvation. We are on equal footing. The, the playing field has been leveled. So I don't know if you're feeling like you're too far gone or, or, or you're feeling like um, you're not good enough or if only they knew the things that I've done, Joe. If only you knew what I had just done, you would kick me out of this church. I want to read a passage that comes from Paul. And if you're feeling that today, I want to remind you, the guy who wrote this passage that we're about to read made his hobby out of murdering Christians. Like what he did before he was saved is he would go to different towns and he would find the Christians and he would murder them in cold blood. And he was not too far gone for the grace of Jesus. He was not too far gone for God's salvation. So I don't know what it is you've done. You're right. I don't know what it is that you've gotten into. But I'm willing to bet that Paul has a leg up on you there. Like I'm willing to bet that it's not as bad as what Paul has done. Yet he writes this. For those who were baptized into Christ have been crucified or have been clothed with Christ. So, so those who have placed their trust in Jesus, that's what he's talking about. But there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The ground has been leveled. There is no more things that we can do to kind of say, well, this separates us and this divides us and this is why I'm better than you or this is why I'm worse than you. The ground has been leveled. So if you feel lowly, if you feel low, I'm not saying that you aren't. Man, you might feel low right now. You might feel like you're at rock bottom. But what I am saying is that in Jesus' kingdom, the low are raised up. In the shadow of the cross, the low have a place in Jesus' kingdom. And the high things are brought low. I don't know if you have allowed this self-righteousness to creep in. John is going to call out the Pharisees in just a few verses. 
And what he's doing is, is he's calling out this self-righteousness that has crept into the hearts of people. And so I don't know if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm better than the person next to me. I'm more deserving of recognition or glory because of my spirituality, how close I am to God or how good I am of a person. If that's you, I just want to warn you or I want to let these words be a warning to you that in Jesus' kingdom, the high and lofty things are brought low. Jesus said, I love, love when Jesus says in his ministry, in my kingdom, those who count themselves as first will be last. This isn't my warning. This is scripture, that there is a judgment for those who count themselves as better than others because in Jesus' kingdom, the ground has been leveled. The divisions that we make no longer exist. And then the verses in Isaiah talk about the paths being made uh, flat and smooth. That there is no longer any obstacles between you and God. There's no longer anything in the way of you and your salvation. That Jesus has made his salvation accessible and available to anyone who comes to him. That is Jesus' kingdom. That is the kingdom that John is making way for. In verse 7, he said to the crowds who came to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the, tr uh, the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John, he's kind of really getting his prophetic fire going here. He's really like going Old Testament on these guys a little bit. And he's calling them a brood of vipers. He's saying, hey, you have fallen into this self-righteousness. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, have uh, gotten into this way where they were smug. They, they had the chip on their shoulder. They had an attitude. They thought they were better than everyone else. And the thing is, is they didn't just think they were better than everyone else. They kind of were better than everyone else. Like when it comes to rule following, when it comes to looking good on the outside, when it comes to this kind of moral perfectionism, they kind of had it on lock. They, they were better than everyone else. They were better than you and me. Like, I don't know if you're sitting here like, I haven't missed a quiet time in a couple weeks, man. Like, I'm doing pretty good. The, the Pharisees had the entire Pentateuch memorized. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 187 chapters, 5,888 verses of Scripture, completely committed to memory and more. Like, when it came to looking good, acting good, putting on that perfect moral face, the Pharisees were better than anyone else. But it didn't lead them to devotion to God. It didn't lead them to a care for the people around them. It actually led them to self-righteousness. It led them to this kind of arrogant, ivory towering. I'm going to separate myself from the unclean uh, heathens of the world. And I'm going to uh, float above the crowds as I pretend how high and mighty and amazing I am. So maybe, maybe in Jesus' kingdom... Moral perfection isn't what's expected. Moral perfection isn't what's required. I think actually John says what's exactly what's required. He says produce fruit consistent with repentance. Produce fruit consistent with 
repentance. It's not about being perfect. It's not about obeying these laws and these rules. It's actually about having a life marked by repentance. And here's the thing about repentance. Two things. One, I think we often miss what repentance really is. Repentance is not going to God and apologizing and asking for forgiveness. And like even the way that that plays out, like God kind of knows what you've done, right? So, so going to him and telling him what you've done kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then asking for forgiveness when you know you've already been forgiven also kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's not what repentance really is. That's confession. And I think confession is healthy. I think confession is important. I think going to people in your life and sitting before the Lord and just saying, hey, I recognize in myself that I've done this. I've sinned against you. And so I'm going to ask for your forgiveness as an exercise of confession. I think that that's amazing. I think that's healthy. But that's not repentance. That's not repentance. Repentance is a physical word. Repentance means to turn away from your sin and to turn towards God. It means to, to cut it out means to take the things that are drawing your attention away from God, leading you off the path of righteousness that he has for you, and to cut them out of your life, to course correct, to turn away and fix your eyes back on Jesus. That's what repentance is. We're called to live a life marked by that practice. And the other thing that I think we miss with repentance is it's not just a one-time thing. Like, you don't repent once when you get saved and, and think that that's it and life's good and you don't really have to do that. No, no, you have to have a routine of repentance built into your life. You need to be consistently and constantly looking at yourself, looking at your heart, matching yourself up with the words of Scripture and saying, are there parts of me that need to change? Am I, am I living this? Am I believing this? If not, I need to change something. I need to make a decision. There's a decision in repentance to, to turn away from those things. And then he says that that, that produces fruit. That there is a fruit then consistent with repentance. And that fruit is a devotion to the Lord and a joy in life that just cannot be matched by the rule-following self-righteousness that the Pharisees had adopted. And as John's going to talk about, there are more uh, fruit consistent with repentance that are a part of kingdom living. I love in verse 10 and the following, he kind of gets into this with the crowds that are listening to him. He says, or, or they say to him, what then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Do not collect any more than you have been authorized. Some soldiers questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. And so people ask, Hey, what do we do? How do we live this out? How do we enter into that kind of living? And he basically says two things. Live generously and live counterculturally. He says, hey, live generously. To the person who doesn't have, live your life in a way that says, hey, I will give from myself to the benefit of others. See, Jesus' kingdom is not a self-centered kingdom. It's an other-centered kingdom. It's, it's a kingdom where you say, man, it's not above me, or, or I'm not above giving out of my excess to another. It is a kingdom marked by generosity. 
And it is a kingdom marked by counter-cultural living. I love how he specifically says this to tax collectors and soldiers. See, tax collectors were the worst of the worst. I don't know if you know too much about tax collectors. See, tax collectors were horrible people. So the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, comes in and occupies the nation of Israel. They begin killing, abusing, taking advantage of these people, and then charging taxes to the government. And they need tax collectors to come and help them collect taxes from the people. And so who do they get? They get actual Israelite citizens to become a part of that. So, so imagine being a citizen of Israel and volunteering, applying to work for this oppressive government that you've seen kill and abuse your people so you could take their money. And then what they would do, if that's not bad enough, what they would do is they would say, okay, the tax today is $10. I'm going to make it $15 so that I can take that extra five. All right, so they would line their pockets. They would exploit and they would abuse. They became the oppressors of their own people. They were the lowest of the low. Like, I don't think a single person in that crowd would have been surprised or upset if John said to the tax collectors, no, not you. You don't get a seat here. You don't get a place in Jesus' kingdom. You've betrayed your own people. But that's not what he says to them. He says, no, you have a place in this kingdom. You may be the lowest of the low, but you have a place here. And what you need to do is live counterculturally. So, so what's expected of you is to steal? Then be satisfied with your wages and, and stop exploiting your people. Do your work honestly. And then the soldiers come to him. And the soldiers, it's the same deal. These are Roman soldiers. These are the oppressors. These are the people that they want freedom from. Again, no one would have blamed John if he said, no, you got to get out of here. You're Romans. We, we, we hate you. You abused us. But he says, no, you have a place here too. You have a place in Jesus' kingdom. So the soldiers had this habit of arresting someone under a false accusation and then accepting a bribe to get them free, just stealing and exploiting people's money. And so... He's telling them, stop doing that. Live counterculturally. If that's what's expected of you, stop it. And I think there's a call for you and me to live counterculture. I don't know what's expected of you. I don't know what's the norm in your circle, but I think you're being called to live apart from that, to live counterculturally from that. And I love, and I think it's no mistake that John uses these two as the example because they're the lowest of the low. They're the hated they're the despised. In a lot of ways, they're the rejected. And he says, hey, you have a place here. And I, and I don't know who it is in your life that is rejected, that is the, the kind of lowest of the low, the person that has been cast aside by society. But I think for us to live counterculturally is to pursue that person in love, to pursue that person with the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does in his ministry. Like all throughout his ministry, Jesus hits this hard. We see him eat with tax collectors, invite tax collectors into his inner circle. We see him show kindness to a Samaritan woman at the well. We don't have time to read it, but in John 4, John, uh, uh, Jesus does something that is so incredibly countercultural at the time. I still think we have trouble fully wrapping our heads around what he does. So he sits across a well from a Samaritan woman. See, Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Jews. The Jews apparently had a hate problem back then. They hated the Samaritans. Hated them. It was, it, honestly, if we call it what it is, it was blatant racism against them. 
And, and on top of that, women were just not treated well in this culture. And for Jesus, who was considered a, a religious teacher, a holy man, to sit across from a Samaritan woman and not only speak to her, not, not only just not cast her out, but to show her grace and kindness and love, especially when he finds out the things that she's done in her past, that is as countercultural as it gets. And you and I are called to walk in that same kind of living. The rejected. The, 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 the person that was cast aside by society. To pursue them in love. To show them a kind of kindness and belonging that no one has ever shown them before. And as we've walked through these verses together, we've kind of done some discovery that was what my, my heart was to do, is do some discovery of what Jesus' kingdom is, what it looks like, what he's calling his people into, and what we have seen, if I could sum it up in a phrase, is that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Theologians have called this the kingdom reversal, that it looks completely different from any kingdom that you could think of. If you thought of a, a God-instituted kingdom, that's not what you would think of. That's not what the Jews wanted. It's not what the Jewish people were expecting. It's not like any kingdom on this earth. Jesus said in his kingdom that he came not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. That to, to wash the feet of his subjects, to get down from his throne and get up on a cross and die in the place of his people. That is an upside-down kingdom. That is a kingdom reversal. That in our waywardness and in our sin, Jesus would see us and come to us, not to reject us, not to judge us or punish us, but to take the punishment on our behalf, to get up on a cross and die for our sins. That is the ultimate kingdom reversal. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter how low you feel, Jesus is calling you into his kingdom now. And you and I, have a place in that kingdom. We're, we're called to live as citizens and representatives of that kingdom right here in this uh, kind of stage of history that we find ourselves in, in this in-between state where Jesus has already come, he's already won, he's already victorious, but it has not yet been brought to its fulfillment. And so what I want to do as we close is just talk about how we can practically respond to this, especially in these next four weeks that we call Advent, these next four weeks that lead up to Christian, uh, Christmas. How do we shift our focus, shift our gaze towards this kingdom living that we're talking about? Well, first, this is more of a side note, I think it would be awesome for you to, to just get into a devotional in these next four weeks. See, the Advent, there are plenty of Advent devotionals out there that I think are amazing that are designed to kind of every day walk you through a different part of what we're talking about and some things that we haven't even gotten the chance to, to talk, touch on today. And, and you can find those on things like the Bible app. There's, I know there's going to be good ones coming from He Reads Truth and She Reads Truth, and you should do that in these coming weeks. But I want to talk about for just a few minutes, how do we respond? What do, what do we do? And I think what we do or how we view the Advent, is we view it as an invitation to live for and long for our King. It is an invitation to shift our focus away from all the things that distract and focus on living for and longing for our King. 
And so I'll break that down. To live for our king is to live a life marked by repentance, to, to build that routine of repentance into our life. It's time to stop trying to be perfect. I don't know who, need, who needs to hear this today, but, but you are not going to be perfect. And that sounds like a tough pill to swallow until you realize that no one is expecting you to be perfect. God doesn't want your perfection. He wants your repentance. He wants you to be able to do that self-reflection and turn away from your sin and back towards him. And the, and the repentance leads to fruit, the fruit of generosity, the fruit of countercultural living. I don't know what your situation is at work, at school, at home. What does it look like for you to live counterculturally when the expectation may be for you to, to gossip about others? Or, or kind of step on other people's necks to get ahead. What does it look like for you to live counterculturally, to work honestly, to lead with kindness? Man, what does it look like for you to pursue the rejected? Man, that might be in your own family. That there's someone in your own family, in your own house, who feels rejected and cast aside. What does it look like for you to pursue that person and say, you have a place here at my table. You have a place here in Jesus' kingdom. And then to long for our king, really quickly, you need to do some self-reflection about what it is that you're longing for. You need to look inward and say, what is it that I am longing for today? Is it Jesus? Is it the kingdom that is to come? Or is it something else? Is it a sin? Is it an addiction? Is it just a good thing that I've made a God thing in my life? That's a whole nother message for another time. But real simply, what we need to do, it sounds simple, but it's not so easy, is starve the things that distract us and feed the things that cultivate devotion in us. Okay, so, so whatever it is that's distracting you, whatever it is that's taking your desires and your affections and your longing away from God, you need to starve that thing. You need to cut it out. You need to uh, starve it of attention, of uh, time and resources. And instead, you need to shift those, redirect those things onto your time with the Lord, onto things that will cultivate a desire for and a longing for God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, I hope that you've heard that there is a place in Jesus' kingdom for you, that you're feeling too far gone or unlovable, rejected. And, and that's just not the truth. That's not the truth. Jesus has a place in his kingdom for you. He died on the cross for you and rose again to give you new life, to give you a place at his table. He has that in store for you today. And if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But as we continue to walk through this kind of upside-down kingdom, let's take the advent as an invitation to live for and long for our king. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for our time together where we could just take a moment to focus on what you have for us in the Advent, in this season leading up to Christmas celebration, God. Would you cultivate us, in us, this, this heart that lives for and longs for you, King Jesus? that desires to see the people around us the way that you see them. Not as rejected, not as low, but as people with a place in your kingdom, God. Would you help us to live counterculturally in that way? 
God, would you show us what it looks like to long for you today? If you want to place your trust in Jesus and start a relationship with him, you can pray something like this with me. Jesus, I have felt far from you. And I have felt low. And I have felt unlovable. But I know the truth today. That you love me. That you died for me. And that you rose again to give me life and a place in your kingdom. Would you come into my heart? Would you change my life today? And if you prayed that, it's not some magic word. It's not some formula of prayer that unlocks some secret door for you. It's the heart. It's the position of your heart before God today. He sees you. If you prayed that, I want you to hear me today. He sees you. He sees your heart. He hears you. Even the words that you can't bring yourself to pray, he hears you. And so if you prayed that, we would love it for you to let us know one way or another, whether that's right after service, you come find me, come let me know that you made a decision to trust in Jesus or reach out to us via email or on the app or, or in some way so that we can walk alongside you. We don't want you to have to walk through this alone. God, we love you. We pray that you would be with us today. Would you bless this time of worship that we're about to have together, God? Pray this all in your name. Amen.